is not here. So I will read. Okay. Well, our sermon text this morning is uh, from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 15 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. The word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray with a great thanksgiving uh, that you don't leave us alone uh, when we come to your word. You don't leave us to ourselves. You promised your spirit to uh, be our teacher. And the very same spirit who inspired uh, these uh, words and has protected their purity and their truth and their power. And so now we pray for his ministry in our lives Uh, through this portion of your word, that we might know you, that we might know the Lord Jesus Christ, and we might be drawn out in love and allegiance to him. Father, for some of us, uh, for the very first time today, we pray, Lord, for the gift of salvation to be bestowed through your word as the Spirit takes it and uh, sends it and plants it in hearts. And we pray for those of us who are already joined to Christ, that you would strengthen us. Even as we look at a part of the Christmas story that is so familiar to us, help us to, to, uh, to see the wonder of the gospel more clearly because of what we study this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, we began our study of this uh, second half of Matthew's uh, opening chapter last week. And we looked at the costs of Jesus' entrance into the lives of Mary and Joseph. And we'll finish this passage next week uh, by looking at the two names uh, that Jesus has given in the passage, uh, Jesus and Emmanuel. But this week, uh, I wanted to uh, just focus on a single theme, which is uh, the virginal conception and birth, the virgin birth uh, of our Lord Uh, which is really his entrance into humanity. If you think about it in the scriptures, uh, Jesus's both Jesus's entrance into our world and his exit from the world are both miraculous. His entrance into the world is through the virgin birth, the miracle of the virgin birth and his exit from our world in the resurrection and ascension is also miraculous. And that's exactly what you would expect if Jesus is who 
the Bible uh, shows him to be, the Son of God. So this morning I want to look uh, with you at two uh, aspects of the virgin birth. Uh, the first is that the virgin birth is a miracle. And no, I didn't think of that on my way over to church this morning. Uh, it's a little more involved, uh, as I hope you'll see. The virgin birth is a miracle, and then the virgin birth is logical. And what I expect is going to happen under God's grace is that we're going to see this morning as we think about what Matthew has to say and how it relates to the rest of what God shows us in his word, how the virgin birth really gives us a window into the very heart of the gospel this morning. So let's look at first at uh, this uh, first uh, heading, the virgin birth is a miracle. And I really have two points to make under that heading. First is has to do with miracles generally, and secondly, has to do specifically uh, with the miracle of the virgin birth. Uh, I know this doesn't sound like a very uh, earth-shattering statement for a pastor to make, that the virgin birth is a miracle. Um, But it's important for us uh, to think about, because as we uh, go farther into Matthew's Gospel, we're going to see over and over and over again uh, that there are miracles that are performed uh, by our Lord Jesus Christ as he brings uh, the kingdom of God into the world. And so I want us to be able to think well uh, about how to think about those things. And so by way of introduction, I want to make one point to believers, one point to skeptics. And then I want to share with you a, uh, an, uh, an illustration from C.S. Lewis that has been very helpful to me. Okay, first uh, for Christians... Why is it that we believe uh, miracles? Uh, that's an important uh, question to think about because not everybody you interact with shares that belief. And so the question becomes, how is it that you and I interact with people who don't believe in miracles? It's important to know how they think. It's important to know what we think and why we think it and to be able to articulate uh, what and why uh, We believe in miracles. Well, I'll tell you why I believe in miracles. There are two reasons. One is I believe in miracles because of who God is. When you get to the question of miracles, the first step you take determines your last step. So I believe in miracles because of who God is. And I believe God. The Bible teaches us of a God who is omnipotent, who's the creator, who who controls. He didn't just uh, create nature. He controls it. And the Bible teaches us very overtly uh, a supernatural worldview. And I believe the God the Bible describes to us. And because I believe the God the Bible describes to us, I believe in miracles. I don't believe in miracles because of scientific evidence. It's because I believe in God. And I believe the miracles in the Bible because of who God is. I believe in the miracles of the Bible because of who God is. What I mean by that is this. God never lies. God's omnipotent. God's all-powerful and in control. God's infinitely wise. My first step in understanding the Bible is to stand under it. That first step of standing under the Bible and trusting it means that I trust what's in it. 
Now you say, well, that sounds kind of circular. And you know what? It is kind of circular. Uh, We understand the Bible by standing under it. So that means I start with this commitment to trust God. Yes. And that's circular. But a word for our friends who might be skeptical. Do you know that your approach to not believing in miracles or to being skeptical about them is just as circular as our position is in believing miracles? Let me tell you why. Um, If you don't believe in miracles, uh, typically the reason you would say that you don't believe in miracles is because you say, well, miracles aren't ordinary. Well, that's true. That's kind of the whole point. You can't use the ordinary to disprove the possibility of the extraordinary. By definition, a miracle is extraordinary. And so I remember when I was a non-Christian, I used to say, hey, uh, I've never seen a miracle. A life just goes on. People aren't raised from the dead. Virgins don't conceive uh, babies without a human father. Uh, So how could you possibly believe in that? But do you understand, in order to be able to claim that the ordinary excludes the possibility of the extraordinary, you would have to know all the ordinary in totality. In other words, you'd have to have a catalog of the entire universe in order to be able to say what is ordinary with certainty. And I'm pretty sure that you can't do that. Now, there's an analogy that uh, C.S. Lewis has. This is very helpful to me. He, he semi-stole it from Dorothy Sayers, and he admits this in his book, Miracles. And he says, that, he says, God's relationship to the world is like an author's relationship to a book. And he says, think about two different stories. Think about a story that you start writing. It's a realistic novel. And it's a story uh, where you've got a character and you write as the author, you write this character in your realistic novel into this real, you paint him into this really tough corner. And you're about 20 pages from the end and then all of a sudden he inherits this massive fortune from an unexpected source and it gets him out of his trouble. Now that's bad writing, Lewis says. On the other hand, You could have a story where uh, at the beginning of the story, a man inherits uh, the same fortune from the same unexpected source. And the whole story is about what happens to his life because he inherits that fortune. He says, now that would be good art. What's the difference? Same fortune, same unexpected source. What's the difference? Lewis's point is this, is that the in the first story, the surprise, the unusual act, is not what the story is really about. Whereas in the second example, it is what the story's about. If what the story is really about all along has been this fortune or this surprise intervention from the outside, then that's a good story. Lewis says, we think, the reason most of us don't believe in miracles is because we think we know the story. We think that the story of the world and of our lives is about nature and about atoms and about molecules and about politics and about economics. And we live in that story about the decisions that men make, about 
um, the events of history. We think that's all the story is about. And Lewis says, yeah. But what if the story were, that we're living in was actually very different? What if the story in which our lives were embedded was a story about God? What if the, what the story was really about was about the Creator interacting with His creation uh, to save and rescue that creation, to demonstrate His faithfulness? What if the story wasn't about Adam's? and molecules, and economics, and politics. Well, then, it would make a lot more sense, wouldn't it? And I think Lewis is right. Uh, I'm persuaded that's absolutely right. Most of us think it was true of me. It might be true of you. Uh, Most of us think we know what the story's about. The first step determines the last step. But if the story is about God, then it makes perfect sense that God, according to his wisdom, would break in at decisive moments and do something to interrupt the ordinary with evidence of his extraordinary power. Now, the virgin birth is exactly uh, that kind of event. It shows us what the story is really about. What is the meaning of the virgin birth? Let me try to summarize it this way. Uh, Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary while she was still a virgin by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. And we just affirm that in the Nicene Creed. And Matthew, you notice, emphasizes it three times in our passage in verses 18, 20, and 23. There's no question that Matthew means to teach us Uh, about the virgin birth. This is not some later uh, kind of invention of the church. And if you look at Matthew's account and Luke's account uh, in Luke chapter 1, it's very clear that they're not borrowing from one another and yet both affirm the virgin birth. Matthew, it's a central emphasis of what Matthew says. Look at verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Conceived by the Holy Spirit without a human father. Verse 20, when the angel speaks to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then again in verse 23, when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14 that we'll look at next week, that's a promise given over 700 years before Jesus' birth. And notice the promise. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And that's miraculous. Now, what I want you to notice first is that the virgin birth of our Lord Jesus is not simply a something that the Son does, but that the Father and the Holy Spirit are spectators of. I want you to see how Matthew is showing us very clearly that the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, His incarnation, is in a very important sense the work of the entire Trinity. Notice how uh, Matthew emphasizes again and again that what's conceived in, uh, in Mary's womb is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you check Luke 1, the same point is made. 
The father is involved because it's the father who's made the promise in Isaiah 7:14. It's the father who sends the angel uh, to Joseph. It's the father who sends Gabriel in Luke 1 to Mary. What's the point of all that? Why does it matter to see that the father and the spirit are also involved Uh, along with the Son. It matters, friends, because it reminds us again that your redemption and mine is not simply the product of uh, an intra-Trinitarian feud or disagreement. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united in the purpose of redeeming sinners. The joy in heaven over the repentance of one sinner is a joy that is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The purpose of redemption is a purpose that is shared by Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father delights to send the Son. The Son delights to come. The Spirit delights to apply the work of the Son to believers. There's no disagreement in heaven. It's a beautiful thing. But it's also true that the center of the Incarnation is the second person of the Trinity. It's the Son. Did you notice when Mike led us in the Nicene Creed that the paragraph on the Father is very short and the paragraph on the Spirit is a little longer. But the paragraph about the Son is really long. And there's a reason for that. Because what the Son does in the Incarnation is remarkable. And I wonder if you'd turn there with me, page 9 in your bulletin. I I don't want to improve on the Nicene Creed. I don't want to try. That would be a bad plan. What is it telling us? Well, let me say... uh, at the beginning, that uh, there are there are more uh, theology PhDs in this world right now that uh, are based on dissertations written on uh, trying to explain the incarnation and the relationship between the two natures of Jesus Christ to his one person than I could possibly count. So there is a certain complexity to this whole question that's full of mystery. But there's an undeniable simplicity to it. And that simplicity is reflected in the Nicene Creed. And it, is, it gets to the heart of what happens in the virginal conception and birth of our Lord. And what the Nicene Creed describes is that the second person of the Trinity, who was very God of very God, who was God of God, light of light, who was of one substance with the Father, who was the one through whom the Father made all things, who he for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Now you say, well, what... What have you told me that's new? Uh, Hopefully nothing. But the key understanding is that the Son of God doesn't lay aside his deity. The Son of God adds humanity to his being in the incarnation. The miracle of the virgin birth, 
The miracle of the virginal conception, the miracle of the incarnation is that the Son of God doesn't subtract from himself. He adds humanity into his being. So one of the church fathers says this. Remaining what he was, the eternal Son of God, he became what he was not. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. So, think about John 1.14. You know this verse, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word, the second person of the Trinity. The Word became flesh. Notice it's still the Word. He's still the Word. Except now, He has become an enfleshed Word. And we beheld His glory, John says, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, why does this matter? The reason it matters is because the result of the incarnation is that we have in one person, Jesus Christ, in one person, we have two natures. We don't have two people. We have one person, the Son of God, who has now both the eternal nature of deity and humanity joined together. You say, well, so what? Well, here's why it's so important. We're men. And if we're going to have a Redeemer... If we're going to have a mediator between us and God, we need a Redeemer who's a man who can really represent us, who doesn't just have the appearance of humanity, but who is really a man. So that when the writer of the Hebrews says, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, we know that that he was a real man just like us. Wasn't like Clark Kent, who appeared to be a human being and looked like every other human being, but who was really a superman. No, the humanity of Jesus was a real humanity. It matters greatly that our Redeemer was not only man, but also God. Because if he wasn't fully God, he wouldn't be able to sustain the wrath of God, which will talk about next week. He wouldn't be able to provide a life of perfect holiness to answer for our life of unholiness. It matters that in Jesus Christ, we have been given a Redeemer who in one person, not a divided person, but in who in one person has the two natures of God and man without any confusion or combination that changes them into something other than they are. So remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Totally central to the gospel. Friends, it all affects what you think happened at Calvary. Did a man answer for the sins of men? Not an apparent man, but a real man. And the answer the Bible gives us, the answer the virgin birth gives us, is yes! A real 100% human being. And you say, how could that one bear the infinite wrath of God against our sins? Because he was the God-man. 
fully God and fully man. So the virgin birth is a miracle and is full of mystery and yet uh, clarity and simplicity. But secondly, the virgin birth is logical. And I know you might not expect, uh, expect that to come after I say uh, it's a miracle. But it is. It's very logical. And <clears throat> if we think about uh, the, sto- the larger story of the Bible and the larger story of our lives, we would even say that the virgin birth is demanded uh, by these stories. Let me give you one other analogy uh, from C.S. Lewis that's been helpful to me. Uh, Lewis says, imagine that this is both of these illustrations are from Lewis's book, uh, Miracles, which is a good book. And I recommend it to you. Lewis says, imagine that uh, we are in possession of uh, parts of uh, either a novel or a symphony. And we've got the fragments of it. Uh, Let's pick symphony. okay? And Lewis says, Now, imagine that somebody comes up to us and says, hey, 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 I found the central part of the symphony that you just have the pieces of. And I I found it and uh, I want you to I want you to recognize and acknowledge it that this really is the the central movement of the symphony that you just have the pieces of. How are you going to evaluate a claim like that? What are you going to do with it? Well, the way you would test that, Lewis says, and I think he's right, is you'd say, okay, let's put uh, those several pages that you claim now are the center of the symphony. Let's integrate it into the pieces that we have and let's let's try to play the symphony. If that really is this new piece, if it really is the central part of the symphony that we've only had fragments of, then the more we play the whole thing, we're going to see that that central part that new central part makes sense of the rest of the symphony. It's going to fit in with the rest of the story that we only had the pieces of. Even if it's more challenging and difficult and presents some challenges to us, uh, we're going to see that on balance, the more we look at it, the more we hear it, the more we listen to it, it's going to make sense of the rest of the story or the rest of the symphony. And the virgin birth is like that. The virgin birth is a piece, uh, uh, it's it's an event uh, that's recorded in Scripture in the New Testament. And when you put it into the story of uh, the Bible and ultimately our lives, what we're going to see is that it makes sense of the story. So three points under this heading. There's a promise of a good seed, there's the problem of the bad seed, and then there's the fulfillment of the promise of the good seed. Now, to understand the virgin birth, you've got to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. So, go back to Genesis 3.15 with me, which we've visited many times. Uh, and there's a reason for that. I, I, I do think that Sinclair Ferguson is right, that the whole rest of the Bible is a series of footnotes to the promise that God makes in Genesis 3.15. I want you to look at this uh, promise with me in uh, light of uh, the virgin birth. Now, you know, uh, we've talked before about how Genesis 3.15 is uh, God's promise of a redeemer. In the immediate aftermath of the fall, uh, God uh, first judges uh, the serpent and pronounces his judgment on the serpent. And part of that judgment is in verse 15 
where God announces to the serpent that uh, God himself, through a seed of the woman, is going to overthrow the serpent. And all the consequences of what the serpent has done. So God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Literally a seed between your seed and her seed. He, singular, shall bruise your head. Fatal wound. And you shall bruise his heel. Think about the image. He's got an image. God, the, the Lord has a, an image that he's drawing of a seed of the woman with his heel above the serpent, crushing the head of the serpent. Right? In conquest and in triumph. That's a very interesting promise when you look at it, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Adam's standing right there. And we know that Eve can't have a baby by herself. And yet when God makes his promise, he only talks about the woman. He only says that the seed of the woman is going to defeat the serpent. He doesn't say anything about a man. Now, that's very striking to me. Because it's not what you would expect unless in the very moment that God announces this promise, it is His plan that His Son will be born of a virgin without a human father centuries later. you were Eve and you were Adam and you had heard this promise and then at the beginning of chapter 4 of Genesis Eve is pregnant you would think to yourself it would be natural for you to think very hopefully that the birth the first birth in the Bible the birth that's going to open Eve's womb would be the birth of the promised redeemer I know that's what I would have thought. That's what I would have hoped. And who's the firstborn? Cain. The birth that opens Eve's womb is the birth of Cain. And what Cain's life and his eventual murder of Abel show us is that Cain is not the Redeemer. So what Cain's shows us is that the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin is much more complicated than we may have thought at first. The way God's promise is going to be fulfilled is going to be much more complicated than we might have thought when we first read Genesis 3.15. And it's not until we get ultimately to Romans chapter 5, if you want to turn with me there, that Paul explains that what happened... That what happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned had much vaster consequences than we might have thought at first. Consequences that ultimately are going to require the virgin birth of the Son of God. So if you go to Romans 5, verse 12. 
And Paul says, uh, this is on page 942, I'm sorry, uh, 942 in your pew Bible. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, meaning Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So through Adam, sin entered the world. And because Adam was appointed the head of all humanity, he's the first human, and all humanity is descended from him. His sin and its consequences spread to all men. Drop down to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. See, what Paul is is telling us is that what we see in uh, in Cain's life is that there's poison in the line. And there's poison in the line because Adam and his sin... Uh, its consequences were not limited to Adam, but spread through the line. And so if God is going to answer or keep the promise of, that he makes in Genesis 3.15, that there's going to be a redeemer who's going to be born of the woman, and yet who's going to conquer Satan, this redeemer is going to have to be both a man and yet be free from the poison that's in the line. So, How's that going to happen? It's going to happen through the virgin birth. It's going to happen because God himself, in the person of his son, is going to interrupt the ordinary progress of the line. And he's going to overshadow uh, Eve uh, through the Holy Spirit and prevent the transmission of Adam's imputed guilt and all the consequences of Adam's sin. He's going he's to prevent that from being transmitted to his incarnate son. He's holding all of that back so that when Jesus gets to Calvary, then he can put it on him. After he's lived a life of total obedience to God. See, Jesus doesn't escape the consequences of Adam's sin. What the virgin birth does is prevents all those consequences from being on Jesus from the beginning. So that he is then free to live his whole life in the power of the Spirit, in obedience to God, entering territory in every moment of his life that no other human being had ever entered. Territory of obedience, claiming a human life for God over and over and over again. So completely, so fully, that later on in Romans 5, Paul describes Jesus' life as one act of obedience. Look at verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience... Oh, excuse me. Verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. You know what that one act of righteousness is that Paul's talking about? Jesus' whole life. I mean, just think about that. Jesus' whole life was so full of obedience and faithfulness to God that it's one uninterrupted, undiminished 
act of righteousness in the eyes of God. That's totally unlike you and me, isn't it? We might have an act of something that looks like righteousness and then it gets interrupted by sin. Jesus' life is so perfect because God, in the, in the virginal conception of our Lord, uh, ensured that Jesus would be fully human and yet not affected by the legacy of Adam's sin until after Jesus had ripened, if you will, and completed and fulfilled that one act of righteousness on the cross so that when he gave his life on that cross at Calvary in place of his people, the sacrifice that he gave to God was without blemish. Oh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful symmetry. It's the virgin birth is a, a, a tremendously wonderful window into the very heart of the gospel. We needed a redeemer who would be a seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15. But he needed to be a good seed of the woman. Because otherwise he would have to make an offering for his own sins. And Matthew gives us a clue. If you go back with me to Matthew... I mentioned this, I think, the first week. This is one of the things I've learned. You know, when you, when you begin to preach through a book, you learn things that, about the book that you read, you know, that I've read in Matthew's case for 30 years as a Christian. And there are things I didn't know. And one of the things I didn't know about Matthew chapter 1 is that, is that Matthew twice tells us, he uses this very interesting word in both verse 1 of chapter 1 and in verse 18 of chapter 1. He uses the word Genesis to describe Jesus Christ. He uses, and the English translations obscure that. So verse 1 of chapter 1, our ESV says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The word literally, here's how it reads, the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. And verse 18, the birth, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place. Same word. Now the genesis of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Now literally that Greek word he uses that, that is genesis, it literally means origin. But do you really think that a man as steeped in the Old Testament as Matthew is would use that word genesis just by accident? No, he's telling us something. He's telling us the same thing that John tells us in John 1. And it's this, that in Jesus, God is remaking humanity. Here's the new man. Here's the new Adam. The new Adam we need. The virgin birth takes us into the very heart of the gospel. And just in closing, I want you to think with me about what the virgin birth says to us. There's a, there are messages in the virgin birth, messages about us, messages about God, and messages about Jesus Christ. I just want to close with these. Uh, what does the virgin birth, uh, first, what does the virgin birth say about us? The virgin birth is really God's evaluation of us. It says that we can't save ourselves. It says that our liability to God 
goes all the way back to the roots of our being. We sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. There's poison in the line. We have a liability that goes all the way back to the roots of our humanity. And on top of that, we have an inability to fix ourselves. That's why Jesus didn't come as a 30-year-old man. That's why he had to be conceived in a woman's womb. Because he was the one perfect man from the beginning. There had to be a new root. Let me just pause here. You know, one of the reasons, one of the reasons I'm a Christian is because the gospel makes sense. The Bible holds together. Friends, I want to commend this to you with great urgency as your pastor. The Christian faith is not a fable. The Christian faith makes sense of life. It accounts for things. And when God tells us things in His Word, whether He tells them to us in Genesis 3 or in Revelation 22, He never contradicts Himself. And so maybe you're standing off to the side and you're saying, this Christianity thing, I don't get it. It doesn't make sense to me. Uh, It just sounds so unnatural. And I would just say to you, Have you really actually cracked the Bible? And have you really thought about uh, what the Bible says? Because when you do, what you'll find is that the Bible gives a very realistic, faithful account of the human heart. Yeah, you've got to deal with the fact that they didn't have computers or cars. But that... That doesn't change how human hearts operate. Read Genesis. Oh, my goodness. You could take the, the rough outlines of the book of Genesis and make a reality TV show that would be number one for 20 years. Why? Because human beings are human beings. Created in the image of God. Broken and torn by sin. Always. Always. Always in need of a Redeemer, whether you have a computer or not. And the virgin birth says, guys, religion, most people think about religion as new information that I'm supposed to harness and implement in my life that's going to produce moral reformation. So I find out what God wants me to do, and so I implement those changes, and I'm changed, and then I gain God's approval. And the virgin birth says that is not what the gospel is about. The gospel is about this. You and I are liable to God for our sins, and we're totally powerless to fix that ourselves. And so the amazing thing about God is that what we need is a salvation that is a 100% gift. A salvation in which I am not required to be a joint venturer or the partner of Almighty God, but in which I am nothing more than a recipient. And that is exactly what the virgin birth says God has done for the world. 
You see, what the virgin birth says about us is that we are liable to God and we are unable to save ourselves. And what the virgin birth says about God is that, is that he is able and he is willing and he has in his son. It's so beautiful. God is so consistent. Edmund Clowney was a great father of our denomination and a very faithful expositor of God's word. For many years, he was the president of the Westminster Theological Seminary for many years and has influenced many people in the PCA. His favorite verse in the Bible is Jonah 2.9. He says the center of the Bible is in Jonah 2.9. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And that's the story of the virgin birth. Jesus Christ. Think about God's heart. We've rebelled against God. We've... We've disregarded him. We are just, we're just like, we're, you know, I was thinking about this this week. I was thinking, how ridiculous is it that I rebel against God? I am like, if I tried to compare myself to God, I'm like the bottom edge of a, a single electron that is on the bottom part of a single grain of sand. And God is the Son. And I won't bow my knee to Him. And yet God, in the face of that, gives to me. And gives to you and gives to the world. And in the virgin birth, what we see is that there's two things. Jesus Christ is God's greatest gift to men. So that Jesus Christ would be man's greatest gift to God. So what the virgin birth says about Jesus Christ is is that it's God's evaluation of Jesus' sufficiency and his worth. God gives the ability of Jesus for our inability and he gives all the assets of Jesus' righteousness for our Liability, And that just think about it, friends. You and I live lives that even at their best are full of regrets and things that in our past we wish we hadn't done or opportunities we wish we had taken in order to honor God. Do you know, Jesus lived his entire life with no regrets. He never looked back on any interaction or any day or any hour of his life saying, I wish that I had gone this way instead of that way. One act of righteousness. One act of righteousness from the very beginning in its holy conception in the womb of the Virgin Mary all the way through the cross and to the Father's right hand in heaven. And God says, take him, take his life, Take his righteousness for your unrighteousness. Take his death to bear the burden of your sins. It's something you could not do for yourself. Take him. Don't just watch him go by at Christmas. Take him. He, if you think about what Lewis said, Jesus Christ is the central chapter. You've got fragments of your life. The virgin birth is saying, you know, you've got, just like the rest of the gospel, you've got fragments of your life, pieces of your life. Now, if you put 
Jesus Christ. God says that Jesus Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection and his reigning at the Father's right hand and his return, this God-man, Savior, King, glorious champion and mediator, priest and prophet of God, that he is the central chapter that every human life was designed to highlight and reflect. Well, put him in there, friends. Let him have his place this Christmas. And watch what happens. Look at what we were and what we needed. Look at what God did and became for us. In light of the virgin birth, how could we ever question the holiness of God? How could we ever, in light of the virgin birth, have doubts about the love of God? And in light of the virgin birth, how could we ever withhold our hearts from this one? Let's pray. Oh, Father. I know I feel it myself. I've passed by the glories of the virgin birth. So thank you for stopping us. Thank you for this great gift of such a perfect, triumphant Savior. And Lord, would you grant for every life here, and I pray this first for myself, that in that centrality of Christ's position, that we would see what you intend for our lives that we would gladly give it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing, Angels We Have Heard on High.